Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 25th annual Noosa meeting of the ANZICS Clinical Trials Group. It's now well recognised that mechanical ventilation, while potentially life-saving, also causes damage to the lung in its own right. Careful setting of the ventilator is crucial to avoiding further lung injury. While plateau pressure ceilings have been recommended for many years, research is now turning towards driving pressure. Neil Ferguson is the Head of Critical Care at the University Health Network and Mount Sinai Health Systems in Toronto and has an extensive research history in critical care ventilation and he joins me today on the podcast. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Neil, what is the current limitations around the recommendations for ventilator settings in ARDS? Well, you know, we've been doing and practicing lung protective ventilation uh, in as part of mainstream ICU practice for 20 years. Really uh, set the uh, the importance of that uh, proven uh, by the the first ARDS network trial, which showed that just limiting tidal volume and and limiting plateau pressure to below 30, targeting target a tidal volume of around six mils per kilogram, had a major impact in uh, in reducing mortality. And so that was a major step forward, and, and obviously after that there was knowledge translation to do and, and practices to update. Um, but in that 20 years, we've continued to learn that, that uh, the lungs are still a fragile uh, organ during uh, acute respiratory failure. And at least in some patients, um, we might still have been doing causing some harm, even if we were sticking very closely to that, uh, that uh, winning protocol uh, from that original trial. And that seems to have led to an ongoing interest in driving pressure. Can you explain what driving pressure is? Yeah, so driving pressure, how we actually measure it, is the, it's the, if we're talking about static driving pressure, that's the plateau pressure. So the inspiratory pressure uh, measured after uh, a pause at the end of inspiration, subtracted from the total PEEP. Um, and that gives you the, the, the delta P, as they call it, the driving pressure. And that's the distending pressure that the alveoli is feeling with every, uh, with every breath. Another way to think of it, when you, when you re- remember our, you're back to your physiological uh, equations and remember that compliance is equal to change in volume over change in pressure, if you do a little bit of uh, grade six math, you get de- change in pressure, delta P, is equal to change in volume, tidal volume, uh, divided by compliance. So another way to think of it, it's it's a way of scaling your tidal volume according to the compliance of the respiratory system of the patient. And that's important because most of the time uh, when the lung is the major problem, the compliance of the respiratory system is related to how small the baby lung is and, or how much of that uh, injured lung is collapsed, atelectatic, and not available to uh, to accept the, the breath that we're giving and the other poor alveoli have to uh, stretch twice as much um, if half the other ones are out of commission. So we've been working on the assumption that limiting the pressure of the whole lung uh, will limit damage. Why would, um, why would driving pressure translate into improved outcomes and less damage to the lung? So we think there's two uh, important mechanisms to think about here. In, in an interesting secondary analysis of, of a lot of these original higher versus lower tidal volume trials that uh, were done in the late 90s, one of my colleagues uh, from Toronto, Ewan Gallagher, has uh, looked at these again and really uh, discovered that almost all the benefit that was seen in those trials 
was derived from patients who had high elastance, low compliance, and therefore had high driving pressures. In the other group of patients, in the patients who, uh, who had low elastance, higher compliance, the signal between those two uh, higher versus lower tidal volume groups really is not there. So in one uh, instance, patients who still have a high driving pressure despite getting six mils per kilogram because their lungs are so bad, maybe we need to go below six mils per kilogram and lower the driving pressure further. So, that, so we think focusing on driving pressure would allow us in those very sick patients to say, actually, we were trying to do lung protective ventilation, but we weren't being aggressive enough with it, if you like. In the other group of patients, and they're actually probably maybe more common, um, in, our, in our observational registry, we, we've looked at this, and if you, do, if you split a group up by a driving pressure of 15, uh, sorry, or a, uh, on six mils per kilogram, or a, a, what we call a normalized elastance of two and a half, um, so more than two and a half, it's about a third of patients. The less than two and a half would be uh, uh, the other two thirds. And two and a half, where's two and a half come from? That's a driving pressure of 15 divided by six mils per, mils per kilogram. So in the patients who already have a driving pressure less than 15, which we think there's a threshold of safety for driving pressure that's somewhere between 10 and 15 probably, um, in those patients, there, there may still be some uh, incremental lung protection from lowering driving pressure further, but there also might be a sec an effect on saying, you know what, we don't have to worry about tidal volume limitation in these people. We might have been making things worse by saying, oh, we have to stick to six mils per kilogram, even though the driving pressure is only eight. Um, and to do that, we've given this patient a boatload of sedation and maybe we've even paralyzed them and they're lying in bed and we haven't been getting them up. And so by sort of freeing the clinician's hands to, uh, to re recognize they're still doing lung protective ventilation despite, um, because the driving pressure is low, that may change outcome as well. So we're in effect under-treating some patients and over-treating other patients. That's, that's, that's the theory. Yeah. That's, that's our hypothesis that we want to test in this, uh, yeah. in this trial. And I'll just say one other f important factor that we have to consider in this is is not is not just the pressure that we deliver with the ventilator. It's the pressure that the patients generate themselves as well as they, uh, as we start to allow them to wake up and breathe on their own, and they're interacting with the ventilator. So it's very important to do some maneuvers to understand. What, we know what the ventilator is doing because that, that displays those numbers. You have to check what the patient's doing because if unless you check, the ventilator is relatively oblivious to that. So we've been working on the, the six um, mils per kilo threshold for a while now. From the data that you and Ewan have, um, how often are we getting it right? And how often do we tend to get it wrong, do you think? Well, if we're using it as, again, this threshold of 15 for driving pressure, we're seeing at least a third of patients, they're getting uh, significantly higher than that. Um, and. Uh, we don't know exactly what the impact on an outcome will be, but that's that's the uh, the major purpose of this uh, drive RCT that was that I was uh, delighted to come to Noosa to present. So, what is the evidence base so far? Is it just the retrospective data and reanalysis of those existing trials, or is there other work being done in driving pressure? There's, so, so, there's lots of uh, there's retrospective analysis that I've talked about already. So, the the original flagship paper for driving pressure was. Uh, published by Marcelo Amato in the New England Journal in 2015 or 2016. Again, a, a reanalysis of several randomized trials. Um, 
more recently, uh, one of my colleagues, Martin Erner, has just uh, had a paper accepted in the BMJ, which uses uh, causal inference tech, advanced causal inference techniques, and has a target trial that uh, says using you use a big observational database. It takes uh, ten thousand patients with hypoxic respiratory failure, and uh, that says if they receive driving pressure. Um, below 15 versus versus higher, what would the outcomes happen like? Um, and this is a sort of a target trial or an emulation of a target trial. Yeah. Um, and that's so that, that paper's just gonna come out uh, shortly. Again, showing that drive, it looks like, again, driving pressure is a is a winner in that, uh, in that setting as well. But I, th- I think we're still at a point where we can be, we have lots of good Theory to uh, and some supporting data to say it's definitely worth studying and we, and and uh, we should do it. But I think that uh, we're not quite there yet to say it's definitely the way to go, and that's why we need these uh, yeah. these trials. So we were talking just a moment ago um, about uh, the silver lining to the COVID cloud being the research in intensive care has has learned a lot of lessons and evolved very rapidly. Um, you're here to present the DRIVE trial, but that's part of a wider study. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think you know, we wouldn't, obviously we wouldn't want to go through COVID <laughs> again voluntarily, but since we, since we did it, um, there are some, uh, some positive aspects. I think one of them is, well, we definitely saw, and the whole world, including patients and uh, politicians and healthcare leaders, saw the value of science. Um, saw the value of large platform trials uh, like recovery and, and remap cap, and and my and my hope is that actually the lines between clinical care and quality and clinical effectiveness research have been blurred a little bit. Yeah. Um, and we're really, uh, I think, this is the next step into a a learning healthcare system where you're not just your quality committee is not just thinking about okay, oh, let's. Uh, Make sure we don't get a central line infection. It's uh, no. What 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 do we don't? What do we not know exactly? And how can we go back and l- know what the right answer is to really improve outcomes? Yeah. So in Toronto, we're uh, leading a, a, a platform trial focused on acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, um, called the Practical Platform. And Drive is one of the interventions actually in the in the invasive mechanical ventilations domain uh, at this time. It's comparing our strategy of driving pressure limited, limitation ventilation compared with our control uh, group, which will be our, a standard lung protective ventilation using six mil per kilogram, based loosely on the, uh, on the Arginet uh, original protocol, but sort of updated to the 21st century where we, we allow people to use almost any mode that they want. We don't get so fussed about the peep that they set and we're really just wanting to keep those plateau pressure limits and tidal volume targets as the main thing there. Yeah. So one group will receive therapy based on driving pressure yep. uh, and the other group will receive conventional care. Is that right? Exactly right. What sort of patients are we talking about? So we're, again, being pragmatic and just we're targeting acute hypoxemic respiratory failure rather than, than true yep. ARDS, yep. Uh, as it were, partially because we, we know that the, the ARDS definition doesn't perform very well and we miss uh, we miss some patients uh, that way. And, and we think that... For these interventions, at least, um, the patients with non-cardiogenic hypoxemic respiratory failure are going to be uh, responsive to these uh, treatments across the platform. 
Other domains in the platform uh, include a, a large um, steroid domain that uh, Bram Rosberg and Lorenzo Del Sorbo are leading that's going to look at uh, steroids in non-COVID ARDS or non-COVID HARF, uh, acute, uh, hypoxemic acute respiratory failure, and also longer steroids in uh, in COVID patients if we still have some of those when, uh, when things get going. Uh, and then we have a couple of, uh, and those are both sort of phase three uh, trials, and we have a couple of uh, phase two pilot feasibility studies uh, funded uh, looking at using ECMO uh, or extracorporeal life support in diff- different ways to, uh, to try and improve outcomes for patients. And one of the challenges I would imagine in research like this is trying to keep the, the group separate, particularly in centres where um, research on mechanical ventilation is a priority. How do you go about trying to ensure that there isn't that sort of creep? Yeah, it's always a challenge when we're talking about a, a continuous and titratable uh, therapy and one in which the clinicians feel very uh, very invested. They might seldom be wrong, but they're never in doubt. Um, and so I think the, the way forward of that is is really th- through an audit and feedback system that gets uh, that'll get going throughout the trial. Just to it's obviously it's impossible to blind, um, but we won't. For example, in the drive arm, we're uh, we're very interested in, in measuring the total driving pressure, including that, that done by the patient. So we're doing this this simple uh, expiratory occlusion pressure maneuver to estimate the patient's uh, contributions to, uh, to, the, to the equation um, and then adding that to the ventilator. Um, we, won't even do, we won't even be doing those measurements in the, in the, in the control group patients in the hopes that yeah. uh, we're not going to contaminate and have a sort of creep of practice from crossover from one group to the other. Yeah. Uh, Neil Ferguson, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, download our free app, My Osler, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.